It's just really wonderful to be up on the front row when everybody is singing with all their hearts. Uh, I'm not sure if you can appreciate it on the back row, but up here it's quite a wonderful worship together. Uh, I'm just curious uh, tonight, two, two questions I ask before we really begin. Uh, I'm always interested to see how many are here for the first time this year. I mean, this is your first year you're here. Would you just raise your hand so we can see? Well, there's a number of you here. That's wonderful. Okay? Second question. How many of you who are here tonight are under 30 years old? If you raise your hand. Well, now. Okay. I noticed the brothers were really looking around for sisters at that point. <laughs> Could we turn tonight to Psalm 126? Psalm 126. One of the songs of ascent. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord indeed has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And then we would look at the, our verse for this weekend, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and just the one verse, 19. My children, with whom I am again in travail, until Christ is formed in you. And then one more. From Colossians chapter 2, these uh, scriptures are all becoming familiar by now. I think every uh, brother is reading from these verses. Just chapter 2 and, and verse 1. So I want you to know how great a struggle. The word there in the Greek is agonizo, agony. Yeah, actual word we get agony. I want you to know how great an agony I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our Father, we come to you tonight and our spirits are so overjoyed as we sing these songs of your Son. Everything in Jesus and Jesus everything. 
Lord, we ask that you would restore and renew, rekindle our hearts in first love for Jesus, that we might be in full agreement with you, our Father, as we gather tonight and speak of this mystery of spiritual travail. Help us, Lord, not only to hear words, but to respond and say, Here am I, send me. As we come toward these last days, and your eyes look to and fro about the earth for those willing to stand with you. We thank you, Lord, that we could gather on this important time. And we pray that you would teach us by your Spirit in whom we depend. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I know some of you have not been here for all of the ministries. It's been a wonderful time already. Last night I tried to introduce this uh, subject of spiritual travail by talking about the very positive nature of spiritual travail because it has a glorious end and a glorious beginning. And then I tried to just mention as an encouragement the higher ground we find ourselves on when we are involved in spiritual travail. And then finally the broader ground we find ourselves upon because we find that we're not alone in our travail, but indeed there are 7,000 also who are praying, who are burdened, desiring the same things of God. So I tried to share this um, uh, last night and then our brother this morning shared so wonderfully uh, with us how we are the fruit of his travail and indeed he led us into the very travail of our Lord Jesus wonderful message. And then Ernie this afternoon sharing Paul's heart and all of those references in his epistles to the struggling and the travail that he felt in his heart. And Ernie really only mentioned some of them. There were many more. Paul was such a a man living this life of spiritual travail. Indeed, we read these verses like in Galatians 4 and Colossians 1. And I just wanted to read these again just to show Here is Paul living on that higher plane in spiritual travail. He's in an agony. And isn't it interesting how expanded Paul's heart is because he's in an agony praying for those he's not even seen. Now most of us don't even pray for those we love and know. And here's Paul in an agony for those he's not yet seen. Of course, he's related to them because the brothers that he knows have gone out there to Colossae and preached the gospel and so on and so forth. I'm not saying he's not connected at all. But he felt as as if he were the father of this young group. He was wrestling that they would be perfected in Christ and know the fullness of Christ. And especially as he's heard reports of some of them swerving from the faith through philosophy and all kinds of things. And so there's Paul just wrestling away. This is a wonderful position he's on. And it's even more amazing when you try to understand this matter of spiritual travail and you see that he's in jail. And there's really not much he can do. I mean, it's not like his spiritual travail is a ministry where he's going around preaching. For he's in jail, but he's found a release. Uh, As he says, you know, you can lock me up, but you can never lock up the word of God. And so he sends out letters that are just absorbed with Christ, uh, believing that these letters will have an impact on the believers. And boy, they send those prayers on wings of prayer. Those messages receive. And he shares 
there he is daily in his cell, and I don't know how, uh, um, if he wrote lists, like my wife always does, or whether he just prayed for various companies of believers as they came to his heart, I don't know. But he was wrestling for those saints in Colossae and for Laodicea. Another place he'd never been. Makes no difference. They're God's kids. They've got to be perfected. Isn't that wonderful? There he is in a place we would say, ah, oh, poor Paul, his ministry's over. And here's Paul wrestling away. Because spiritual travail is not limited to time and place. It's such a wonderful living ministry. Well, the reason I bring all of that up is because there's an important lesson to learn from that. And it's this. Spiritual travail is not a teaching. You've noticed nobody has given you the one, two, three, four. Except me tonight. I'm going to do that. But <laughs> up until this time, there's been no fool to try it. Because it's a mystery, this spiritual travail. How does the Lord lay hold of somebody like that? And then somebody lay hold of the Lord. It's, there's a mystery there, you know. It's deep in the creation and it's deep in the heart of God. Who can speak about it? It certainly isn't a teaching. And it isn't a ministry. Now, you know, we, we like titles. But just like we don't have people, at least not in the assembly that I know, we don't have people we say, oh yeah, they're the overcomers. They have a ministry of overcoming. Now, well, who can say that? And who can say, well, you know what? I'm a travailer. <laughs> yeah, that's my ministry. I'm a travailer. Yeah. I fold chairs and travail. I have two, <laughs> two fold ministries. Now, you see, because spiritual travail is not a ministry, spiritual travail is a life given to the Lord. It's a life, as are all things in church. Church is a life in Christ, and it involves this travail. Now, our dear brother Stephen shared some wonderful things this morning, many that I'm thinking about and, and uh, appreciating so much. But one of the things that I, I feel like he made clear to us is that every human being on the face of this earth will go through travail. It's because of this fallen world. It's a travail to go to work. It's a travail to work with dishonest people. It's a travail to be shortchanged or cheated. It's a, it's a travail all the time. Uh, it just Life is a travail. Come to New York City. Travail city. <laughs> life is a travail. But we, as the Lord's people, can turn that travail into spiritual travail. And often, in fact, the Lord uses our travail that turns into futility to bring us in to spiritual travail. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be so bold to say, as I think most of you, I can't think of any other reason that you're here other than that you love the Lord. Or else you're crazy. <laughs> too many meetings, too little time. Five minutes out of breakfast, over here, it's... But you're here because you love the Lord. And so I want to prophesy something. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> you will know spiritual travail. Now your only choice is, and one reason I had young people, I wanted to see how many we have here is, you do have a choice in how long you delay before you give yourself to the Lord. And if we had any uh, truly... Uh, 
a sorrowful moment here tonight, it would be that I could ask people, and in this audience of people over 30, there would be a good two dozen who would stand up here and tell you how many years they wasted following the travails of the world that ended up in nothing. How many started their own businesses? How many went and moved out somewhere and got into the wilderness? And how many tried this? And how many went wrong over here? And the, the, the testimony would be waste, futility, emptiness, until I gave myself to the Lord. And he gave me a useful travail instead of purposeless travail. I, I can't imagine a, a woman travailing for nine months and then finding out she's not pregnant. <laughs> But you know what? That's exactly what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. All of your travail and your groaning and your, your striving and your pregnancy ends up futility. The word in Hebrew literally means emptiness. The doctor says, sorry, you're not pregnant. Of course, I also can't believe those women who go to the doctor and say, you know, I'm having some gastric distress. And he says, get on the table, you're going to have a kid. Can you imagine somebody? Occasionally we find these stories. What is the matter with this woman? She's carried a baby for nine months, didn't know it. These are true stories. At least it says so in the Inquirer. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> because you love the Lord, and more importantly, because He is your Lord, you will know spiritual travail. Even from the youngest of days, you can know such travail. Now there are amazing men of God, and we read their biographies sometimes, and there are some of these amazing men who from the moment they were saved, saw Jesus the Savior and that so great salvation in such a way that it gave them a hunger for souls that became a labor and a travail through their lives. I know, I know one brother who told Ernie and I one time, he cannot go to sleep until he's led somebody to the Lord. And he was absolutely sincere. Isn't that amazing? Uh, you know, uh, guys like Charles Finney, you know, from the moment he got saved, he had a burden for souls. That's a travail. And just one example of how we enter in. But how did he have such a vision? See, only the Lord can do these things. Now tonight, I, I want to um, share three things for the sleepy ones. That's all of you, I can see. Three things I want to look at in regard to this matter of spiritual travail. The first thing is this. What are the characteristics of those that we find in the Word of God are involved in spiritual travail? They're characteristics that are, are true for you and I, for the most part, but I just want to give you a little checklist Five characteristics of those, when we see in the Word of God, those involved in spiritual travail, this is uh, what they're up, up to. And then the second thing, perhaps, just share some words on how does this matter of spiritual travail on a higher level begin in a, in a, in a fuller way in our life. That's the second thing. And the third thing is this. What is the key element in effective spiritual travail. The key element in effective spiritual travail. So with those questions before us, 
I, I come now to this uh, list of characteristics when we study the word of God here and there of those who are used in spiritual travail. And I'm going to turn to you to scripture just so you can write down the scripture and then uh, next to it the word that I want to use. So the first one we come to is in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And verse 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The first characteristic we see in those who are, are engaged in spiritual travail is they're available. Now I know that's very obvious. All five of these things, characteristics are very obvious, but it just needs to be said. Here she was, a virgin girl, and when the angel came and said, you're going to have a child, she said, how can this be? And then he said, the Holy Spirit will uh, overshadow you and you'll, you'll have a child born of God. Imagine this travail she's about to enter into and it's not the usual travail at all. And yet it's a travail of holding this child for these, uh, the period of pregnancy and then giving birth. Behold, the handmaiden, be it done to me according to your will. There's so many people with great ability, but the Lord always looks for availability. There are many people chasing and running, and he can't seem to get them alone long enough to meet with them. But for Mary, she was available. For Isaiah, here I am. Send me. Availability. Now a little footnote to availability is this. I'm going to say it this way. The Lord looks for consecrated availability. Now you know before Isaiah ever said, here am I, send me. The angel had to come and touch his tongue with the, the coals of purification. Consecration. The Lord is always looking for young people and the, the older ones who are consecrated before him. They're available. I am a living sacrifice. I present my body to you, Lord. What would you have me to do? And the Lord comes one day and says, I want you to do this. And you say, here am I. Send me. Availability. And I ask with each of these, are you available to the Lord? Have you presented yourself to him? This is the first characteristic. The second characteristic we find in Psalm 131. Psalm 1, 3, 1. A very short psalm. We'll read these verses. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a, lean, a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. 
The second characteristic of those the Lord uses in spiritual travail is this. They're satisfied with the Lord. They're satisfied with the Lord. And the picture of this weaned child, a child upon the mother's breast, but not at all searching for food, satisfied, satisfied with salvation, satisfied with his grace, satisfied with his peace, satisfied with his blessings. Oh, are you satisfied? I remember, oh, it was more than 40 years ago uh, since I've heard the song, but there's a famous gospel song that they always used to sing. I am satisfied, I am satisfied, I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think on Calvary, is my Savior satisfied with me? I am satisfied. I remember the first time I saw this big old gospel preacher sing that song. just brought tears to my eyes. Because I could see how much he loved Jesus. He is so satisfied. David says, I'm like a wean the child. Oh, all those big issues I used to worry about. If Obama's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Whatever. Now... I lean on Jesus' breast and say, Lord, I'm satisfied with you. Now, you know, many of our assemblies, we try to gather on the Lord's Day. And there's a discipline that we try. It's very tough for us. But we try to do this. When we come together to break bread, let's be satisfied with the Lord. Let's not start in by saying, oh, Lord, we're so happy to come to you. And by the way, Lord, I need help about something. So we don't pray those kinds of prayers, do we? We try to say, Lord, we're satisfied with you. And sometimes in the saying, we realize how great is our salvation. But there is a great robber to our availability with the Lord. And that is sometimes even a false sense of continual neediness. This world has wrecked us in such a psychological state that some people are so needy that it's all me, 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 me. But don't you see, to live on higher ground, we have to come to a place of satisfaction. Of course, we always have things. But isn't it interesting, the Lord says, if you will seek His kingdom and His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. And so the Lord has to bless us and bless us and bless us and bless us and bless us until we finally realize that. He does take care of us. Isn't this true? Oh, it's so true. But are you satisfied with Jesus? Well, this is a very important place to come to. The third thing we find from uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3, and Ernie mentioned this passage. I'll just read one verse here. The third characteristic, first, available, second, satisfied, third. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now the third characteristic of those who are useful to the Lord in spiritual travail are those who are pressing on to know the Lord himself. It's that wonderful song of A.B. Simpson, written out in our lives. Once it was the blessing I sought, now it's the blesser. 
Once I wanted to be filled with the Spirit and have gifts of the Spirit. Now I want Him. There comes a crossover point in a Christian's life, and it will come to all of our lives. And it's a time where the things of Christ are so wonderful. All the gracious things we have received, but there is a knowing of Christ that begins to preoccupy us. And we find ourselves pressing on after him. And this becomes so important for the rest of our lives. Are you pressing on to know him? Are you still looking for the accoutrements, the accessories of the Christian life? Oh, if I could just have some peace. Oh, if I could just have some financial blessing. Or so on and so forth. Well, you see now, of course, the Lord does bless us. The Lord does keep us. The Lord does deliver us. But you know, behind all these things, we need to see the Lord himself. And you remember how the people out in the Galilean plain, they loved to receive bread from the Lord Jesus, but they couldn't see that he was the bread. And so we, as we receive blessings from the Lord, we've got at some point to look through it and say, ah, it's you, Lord. You were behind that gift and run after him. Uh, this is an important issue. And in this way, I think uh, with young people, this is a straining point because I think even young people who grow up in the church, they grow up with two feelings. One, that they are really undeserving. And two, that still they have a duty to thank the Lord for all he's done. But three, they're actually afraid to truly get to know him. They're timid. They're shy about it. Their prayers are always, oh Lord, I, I'm so unworthy. It's as if they timidly run in, even in our worship times. They like timidly run in and say, oh Lord, I'm so unworthy, but I just want to tell you, I love you. They're gone. <laughs> well, we can understand that. Who here feels worthy of our salvation? There's no issue there, but there comes a time where in the assurance of his grace and his love for you, you no longer need to be timidly feeling, well, you know what, I, I know he loves me, and I know I should love him more, but I really don't want to get too close because he might nuke me. <laughs> he might grab me in some way I'm afraid that he might do. Oh, I don't want to be a missionary to Africa. And so you just kind of creep in. I remember as a child in the Museum of Natural History in New York, my father took me to this one particular thing, you know, where they stuff all these animals and they, they make these little uh, whatever they are. And uh, they had one called the salt lick. Salt lick. And what happens is there, there's certain springs that have a lot of salt in the water. And when those dry, it leaves some salt on the ground. Now, the animals in the African uh, uh, Serengeti need that salt to live. And the interesting story that my father told me was that there was a kind of a neutral ground at the salt lick where the lion and the gazelle would both come very tentatively, of course, on one side or the other and lick the salt they needed and leave. And I often feel that when I see young people. Well, you're licking the salt and tentatively at that. But why don't you jump into the hole? Say, Lord, I love you. No holes barred. I'm yours completely. Take me, use me, and I'm going to stay in your presence even if you nuke me. <laughs> you know what? That's a liberating moment. And it takes a while, doesn't it? Now, come on. Admit it as a Christian. It takes a while to come there. 
You're tentative the first few years. You're, you're sure that uh, everybody else is happy, everybody else is saved and doing well, but you're still a dreadful sinner. And the Lord knows it. If you get near enough, something's going to happen. No, 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 no. Come on. Not only satisfied, now you're pursuing the Lord. And here's Paul again. He's in prison. He's still got time. He can't, doesn't have far to run in the jail. But he's pressing on to know the Lord. There we go. The fourth characteristic uh, I, I will take from Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. And the fourth characteristic is this. This vessel that the Lord would use is a maturing vessel. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 19, it says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. There is a growth which is from God, and it takes a while to mature. You notice I didn't say the characteristic is they were mature, but they were maturing. For surely the analogy applies that a mother must be mature enough in order to bear a seed, nourish the seed with her body, and then to give birth to a child. Now, you can't go up to a two-year-old little girl and say, have a kid. Well, they are potentially a mother, but they have to grow up and mature, right? And the, the same is spoken for men in the sense of being spiritual fathers, which John speaks about in his letter. And a spiritual father takes his son and his daughters, of course, now, and you want to teach them. Uh, bring them into sonship, to maturity, to responsibility, to productivity uh, in the kingdom of God, in the house of God. And so here is a, a burden. But you know what? You have to be a father to do that. You can't tell, uh, uh, again, even if it's, if it's your favorite son and he's five years old, you can't say, okay, son, here's the keys. Take over the business. They're just not ready yet. And so we can't force people into something. You can't force children to grow up fast. But the, the greater problem is we sometimes try to make ourselves grow faster. And we usually do damage in the process. Who, who was the great piano, uh, pianist? Was it Mendelssohn who kind of fixed a device for his fingers to uh, make his ring, ring finger work better? And was, it, was it Schumann? It was somebody, and he screwed up his hand in the process, trying to make himself faster by some kind of external mechanical devices, and he, he hurt his hands in the process. No, no, there's a growth which is from God. We need to let young people grow up. There is a process, isn't there, where they have to be established. They have to be blessed. They have to learn God is faithful. They have to see God answer prayer. They have to know God forgives them a thousand times. And then they're ready for something more. Which brings us now to the fifth characteristic, and that is, of course, sometimes when the Lord begins to bring spiritual travail to them, he breaks the vessel. And sometimes he looks for a broken vessel. Who is useful to the Lord? Uh, a horse that's never been sat upon? A wild stallion? No, it's the broken horse that is useful to the Lord. So here again, I'll give you a scripture in Isaiah 57. 
In Isaiah 57, we know this wonderful scripture there. Verses 14 and 15, as he's talking about building up the way of the Lord. Isaiah 57, verse 14. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. A broken vessel the Lord would use. Um, and our young people, I'm so glad to say, when I go in different youth conferences and things, we have such pretty seeds. A lot of these seeds, they know the Bible, they're all squeaky clean. They've got a good moral life. They're disciplined in their lives because we disciplined them. Those are those Chinese recitals Ernie was talking about. <laughs> we have some wonderful seeds among our young people. But in the end, if a seed keeps running around trying to decide where it wants to be planted, uh, the Lord has to break that. Because it's only when the seed falls into the ground and dies that true life can issue. And so as wonderful as the many seeds we have are uh, uh, here tonight may look, it's when you give yourself fully to the Lord, right where you are for now. You're in school, give yourself to the Lord at school. And the Lord will bless you and, and you'll be fruitful wherever you are. Don't keep holding yourself back as a seed. The Lord wants to use you, and so he breaks us. What, what does a broken vessel mean? Well, that's a whole message in itself, isn't it? But it, it, it at least means this. It means that you've lost the argument. Um, you're actually not broken if the Lord tells you to do something and you say you can't do it because you're unworthy. Because now that's still you. A broken vessel is the Lord says, I want you to do something, and you say, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Do according to your will. Do you have an argument with God? Well, a broken vessel says, Yes, Lord. It's very simple, isn't it? It's not a question of whether you feel you're worthy. He asks us to do something. We say, Yes, Lord. Now these are the characteristics that we find in the scriptures as we see a Moses or a Daniel or these various people. And I just wanted to give you that little checklist so that you could ask your own heart, am I available? Am I satisfied? Am I pursuing? Am I maturing? Am I broken? Now don't try to break yourself. The travail of life will break you. And so the Lord has his vessels. Now the second um, matter we want to take up very simply tonight is this. Now how does the Lord begin this process of travail in our lives? How does he implant that seed that begins to lay hold of us with a, some kind of a burden and that it enables us to begin to lay hold of the Lord on this higher ground of spiritual travail? Well, uh, Ernie this afternoon said there are no coincidences. 
And so my first point is, there is a sovereign coincidence, meaning the Lord has arranged something. There is a, uh, we, we, Ernie and I agree, of course, you understand what I'm saying. But the language I'm using is this, there is a sovereign coincidence of two things that happen in your life. The first is a blessed seeing of the Lord unveiled in a certain way. The second is you see in your own circumstances the utter contrast with what you just saw in the Lord. And that brings a groan into your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? The first aspect of it is vision. We see something. The Lord reveals something to us. How precious. Oh, I've seen the church, we say. I've seen the Lord is coming back. Then we look at our circumstance. We look at our situation. And there's such utter contrast between what we see and what we're living in that it causes us to groan. How can we not groan? Think about it. If our brother Lucio shared such a wonderful little devo this morning in our prayer time, and then Ernie backed it up, if Romans 8 is true and we see our destiny, doesn't it make you groan when you look at who you are now? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a disparity that must make us groan. It's the very nature of a spiritual travail. Listen, when God's loving plans come down and touch the hearts of independent, rejecting men, there's a groan. When God came into the garden and Adam and Eve were hiding, there was a groan. Did you hear it? Adam, Adam, where are you? Oh, God has such loving plans for his people, but we're so Christ-rejecting. We're so independent. We're so, no, not right now, Lord. We're so disrespectful of his will. There's a groan on this earth, even in the house of God. He would do so much and show us so much, but we don't even realize it. We, we, we live in fool's paradise. We, we think we're okay. That's why the Lord has to open our eyes to something wonderful from his heart and when we see that then we realize our estate and so Elijah stood before the Lord and when he saw Jehovah the king of kings the true king of Israel his heart was broken when then he had to go out of his closet and look at Ahab what an entire contrast Jehovah Ahab king king and so he was burdened said, Lord, what do we do? The Lord says, no rain. I'll show you who's king. And so on. He began to live in the travail for the restoration of the kingdom. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? If we don't see something great in the Lord, everything is fine down here on earth. <laughs> Under the sun, everything's well, you know, it's just the way it is. But when we see something of the Lord, oh, then things begin to change. So travail comes out of a blessed vision of the Lord. We see the Lord as his body. We see the church. We see the kingdom. We see him in his glory. Oh, we only see in part, but what we see is part of a whole that's glorious. But the result of that is, as we look at our present circumstances, it causes us 
to groan. And so I began this evening by reading that little Psalm 126. And I think you all know the story. When the uh, children uh, came back from captivity, they came back to Jerusalem and they had a celebration service like, we can't believe it. How did the Lord set us free? We thought we were going to be in Babylon forever. And then suddenly one day the king says, okay, everybody go home. And they're jumping up and down. So boy, the Lord has done great things. And the nations around say, boy, the Lord has done great things. He delivered us from our captivity. Praise God, what a deliverer. What a God, he brought us back. And in the process, this saint who wrote this song looked into their hearts and said, well, the Lord's delivered us out of captivity, but we still have captivity in us. Oh, Lord, turn our captivity. Here we are in the land and we're experiencing drought. And all we got is a little bit of seed. What do we do, Lord? And they began to groan. And isn't this the story of our lives so often? We see the Lord's great deliverance and we see that the, as it were, the Lord took us out of the world, but he didn't take the world out of us yet. And there's a groan. And there's a travail. And so our dear songwriter said, He that goes forth in weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing. But now there's a laying down of seed. Now there's a travail that there would be a, 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 a fruitfulness uh, within Judea and not just delivered. So, you know, when we get saved, isn't it great we got saved? Isn't it great? I mean, we got saved from hell, we got saved from the world, we got saved from sin. It's so great. But after a while, don't you look in your life sometimes and say, you know, what's this drought going on? I'm not so satisfied as I used to be. I'm singing the same songs, but it's more la, la, la. Get, let me have a new song. That one's kind of old. Uh, it, it, isn't it marvelous? I mean, just think of the mercy of the Lord. How does he help us to enter into his heart? He shows us his heart. Then he says, now look around. Down through the history of the church has been great moments like that. You know, you've all heard the story of Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. And the two of the tremendous things that they're known for is that they were actual pioneers in, in missions. They sent out so many of their own into uh, places uh, as missionaries, and even uh, gave their, their own people into slavery that they might reach the slaves. And they began, when the Holy Spirit came down upon them in 1727, on August 13th, they began to pray, and they prayed for a hundred years, nonstop, every hour of the day, at least two people in the little prayer tower, which if you visit, Hernhut, Germany, is still there to this day. 100 years of unceasing prayer. It's amazing what happened. And you know how the whole thing happened? If, I could, if you read the story, you find out something. Count Zinzendorf had a vision of the Lord. And it became one of the mottos of the Moravians. And it's this. His wounds are healing. And what he saw, this was his vision, actual vision, he saw that if we would step into the wounds of the Lord, others would be healed. And so what we need to do as Christians now is find ways that we can suffer in order to bring eternal life to others. And so they came to this idea, we will sell ourselves into slavery, suffering in the wounds, and bring salvation and healing to those. If we suffer, others will be saved. This was their concept. 
Well, now, I, I don't want to talk about the theology of this, but, but they believed that the, the fellowship of his sufferings were abiding in the wounds of the Lamb of God. They always sang about that. I have a Moravian hymn book, even to this day. It had 850 songs in it. Many of them are about the wounds of the Lamb, the wounds of the Lamb. This was Count Zinzendorf's vision. And out of that, they sent missionaries, sacrificing their lives because, and of course, it paid off. If you're willing to lay down your life, others will know eternal life. And so this was their mission. Isn't that amazing? Out of that vision of the Lord Jesus, they suddenly saw a world that was dying and needed healing. And they went out on that basis. You would know in the 19th century there was the Keswick movement that happened in Great Britain and England. And the Keswick movement was, it came out of vision. Because in those days there was a clarity about salvation. But there was a need for practical holiness. And frankly the church was saved but not sanctified. And some brothers and sisters from here and there saw a revelation of this thing that had not been clear before in such a way for many years. And it's this. It's the indwelling life of Christ that is the basis of our holiness. It is his life lived in us, not our own. This is what they saw in the Keswick. And they began to preach this practical righteousness. And it brought forth life on the other side. And it touched the churches that had been preaching the gospel but didn't know holiness. Oh, the indwelling life of Christ, our holiness. And so in the Keswick Convention, every week they have a night where they preach on the exchange life. Christ's life for our life. This was their understanding of how we could attain to holiness. And then the third one I'll mention, I'm just trying to show you what happens when somebody sees something and then they see their environment. It causes groaning and, and something to happen out of life. Our dear brother Sparks, when you read his history, I just recently read his book, Shaped by Vision, a, a biography about him. Anyway, this brother was one of the rising stars in the pulpit ministries of England. Now, in, those, in the turn of the century in England, they very much fancied great preachers. You know, Spurgeon and F.B. Myers and, and uh, G. Campbell Morgan and such like as this. And Brother Sparks was one of these emerging men with this expository gift and this ability to speak to large conventions and groups he spoke at Keswick and various places. He had this tremendous expository understanding of the Word of God. But one day, God opened up a vision of the immensity of Christ. And it absolutely spoiled Brother Sparks. And he left that whole future and met with a group of people and traveled around for most of his life, ministering to small groups of people who wanted to hear about the dimensions and the centrality and the fullness of Christ and the object of God's desire. He began to speak things that people, really, I don't know if they ever had heard them before. But that vision of who Christ was spoiled them for this ministry. So I'm a hot speaker. And many come to hear these wonderful doctrines and expositions that's not what the Christian life is all about. It's to know the immensity of Christ and have him worked out in our lives. What a vision our brother saw. What a travail he entered into. 
And so we have something here, which can be something we need to be aware of. If we talk about things like church vision, God's purpose, the soon coming of the Lord, the recovery of the testimony, if we talk about these things and they don't produce a groaning within, then, dear brothers and sisters, it's just a teaching. These are not teachings. This is the heart of God. His desire for His church, His desire for the recovery of the testimony, this is God's heart desire. The coming of the Lord is a desire. The preparation of the bride. There's a groan behind every one of these words. And when we hear them and it does nothing to us, it's a teaching. And unless we learn it deeper, we run the danger of become gospel-hardened. Now, I have spoken in many different kinds of groups and churches and camps and things in my lifetime, but I want to tell you that the place that makes me groan the most is where I've had to speak in front of gospel-hardened people. I've gone to some churches and church camps where I've preached to people who've known the gospel since they're this high, and they disrespect it, and they make fun of it, and make light of it, and I tell you, I just groaned. One time, I went to a youth camp. This is the truth. And, they, and the kids were so rebellious and absolutely uncontrolled that in the middle of my second message, 10 minutes in, I said, that's it. I'm not speaking to this group. And I went back to my cabin, just started praying. And it took them about 12 hours. But those kids broke down and started weeping. And we had a great meeting in the consecration time as a result of that. But I, I wouldn't have it. it. It was just sheer disrespectful to talk about the Lord Jesus and to see people making fun of him and carrying on and doing all these kinds of things like they did. It was just wrong. And I couldn't take it anymore. Well, we need to be careful too. I tell you, if tomorrow morning we sing Maranatha and that doesn't touch something, some kind of string and chord within us of a longing, of a travail, then it's just become a song. Surely that song was written under greater groaning than that. So you see what I mean? There, there's something important there. It's so easy to know the words and not to know the reality. You know, it's such a blessing to be here with Ernie and Cher. Because Ernie and I have known each other for 43 years. And we were going to seminary together. And we went to a seminary who didn't teach any of this kind of stuff. I never heard what spiritual travail was. I had no idea what that was. Or church life. You know, forget it. But you know what? We were reading books. Uh, they would, people would hand us books, sort of like undercover people. <laughs> they, they would slip us the normal Christian life, the normal Christian church life. And I'm reading this stuff. It all makes sense. It's perfect and everything. One time I brought it up to my professor. He says, ha, stuff's baloney. First of all, that guy believes in body, soul, and spirit. Anybody who knows his body and soul. And all this kind of, I, I got confused every time I asked a professor what's going on. But meanwhile, Ernie and I are reading this illegal literature. <laughs> so, so when I got out of cemetery and I became a minister out there, uh, I, I, I read the books and you know what? I began to teach the teachings. I began to teach the teachings of the fullness of Christ and about the normal Christian life and about ch church vision and all this kind of stuff. 
And, and you know what? And so there was a group, a little church was being formed in the, I was in North Carolina and I'm pastoring this group and it's really wonderful. Everybody says, oh, it's such a wonderful message. People coming to receive teaching of the word it is wonderful. But we had a problem. The tires were leaking. Now what I mean by that is this. If I got sick and couldn't speak for a couple of weeks, the congregation cut in half. But then if I showed up, pump the tire back up, people come. Now, unfortunately, I also had a twofold role. I was the leader of worship. Me and my guitar leading the worship. When I was there leading the worship, everybody's worshiping, praise God. When I'm not there, people not worshiping, they're not coming. I came back, blew up the tires. Now, Now I'm building the church. And I'm teaching the teachings. Everybody's liking the teachings. But you know what? They're not getting it. I'm saying, but don't you see? They say, yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Jesus, yeah. Cool. (laughs) Okay. So now my zero hour comes, wouldn't you know? I'm up in what's called, it was called the church on the hill because it was a rented house up on the hill. That's why everybody called it in Raleigh the church on the hill. So there I am up on the church on the hill. Now down in the valley is a house. And in this house there's some Catholic charismatics. Questionable from the start. But I don't know why, but once a month this brother, Stephen Kahn, would go and speak to these Catholic charismatics. Now, when I'm not busy up on the hill, they invited me to come and hear my brother Stephen. Now, I went down there to listen to him. Every, now, he was supposedly going through the Bible. He was going Judges one week, and then Ruth the next week, First Samuel. It, one weekend, he took a whole book. Every book talked about the flesh, the cross, and the resurrection life. I tell you. Down there in that house of Catholic Charismatics, every time he spoke, it was almost audible groanings. Oh. (laughs) And I was one of the biggest groaners. This guy was killing me. Now I go back up the hill. Everything's fine. I go back down in there, and he's killing me because everything he said was true. And the more I saw of Christ and the cross, which he spoke, Christ crucified was his message. He didn't preach the Bible chapter by chapter. He preached Christ crucified. Don't let him tell you he was doing Bible study. <laughs> he preached Christ crucified, and I tell you, he was slaying me every time I went. You see, because I saw what he was saying, and I saw up on the hill that I was pumping it up myself. And I saw the groanings of the beginnings of the church down in the valley. And I saw something completely manufactured up on, the mount, up on the hill. And I left what was up on the hill. And my wife and I and kids went down and joined that despicable group in the valley. <laughs> and continued to receive life and life and life. You see, it isn't just a question of seeing something wonderful. It's only a travail when you see it in terms of your own context. And the Lord brings us into such a coincidence that we might see these things together. And so maybe uh, uh, at some point in your life, just as an example, just to give you two examples, then we'll move on here. Um, You remember the day when perhaps for you, 
the Bible became a Christ-filled Bible. Now, <laughs> we can study the Bible. There's a lot of stuff to study, a lot of doctrines and a lot of propositional truth and all kinds of things. But whoa, when you see a Christ-filled Bible, which brothers like our brother Stephen did, you know, you know, have you ever read Seeing Christ in the Bible? Is it Bible or Scripture? Seeing Christ in the Scriptures. Every book of the Bible. Jesus, there he is. <laughs> I said, what? He's in Zephaniah? <laughs> anyway, when God gives you a Christ-filled Bible, and then you go to that Bible study at work, where you got those other Christians there and you're all munching a sandwich and studying the word and you share truths from the Christ-filled Bible, they say, you know, don't, don't share that stuff. We want to know this, how to be happy in your marriage. Huh? The one, two, threes of witnessing and so on and so forth. But you understand, you know what happens if that really happens to you? If God has given you a Christ-filled Bible, in other words, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal Christ in the word to you, if that doesn't give you a groan when you meet other Christians who don't know a Christ-filled Bible, I don't know what will. How wonderful there's so many people saved. But I'm telling you, what, people, what most people are eating is dust off the floor. And you have a Christ-filled Bible. Doesn't that make you groan when you meet your brothers and sisters? They're truly your brothers and sisters. And if we find such, we must groan and ask the Lord, oh God, give me opportunity, help me just share something of the fullness of Christ. And many of you found on your jobs or at school or such opportunities, the Lord began to open the eyes of one person at a time, right? <laughs> to the wonderful truth of Christ in his word. Or perhaps you go to a conference sometime. And the Lord fills you with conference vision and conference blessings. There was a time when you were together with the saints and you wished the meeting wouldn't stop. And you were crying and worshiping. It was so wonderful. And then you have to go back home to the assembly that you're in. Maybe it's a church in decline. A group of people with doctrines compromised or pastors running off with the organist or some kind of state of the church like that. Doesn't that cause us to groan? Every time the Lord shows us something of himself, honestly, I, I, I yearn and long that others could know it. It's too good not to give away. And yet people are so unreceptive. Have you ever tried to... Share with somebody, say, what are you talking about? Quit, quit talking about that stuff. That's spooky. Spiritual travail. <laughs> I'm not interested in that stuff. Once it was the blessing, let it ever be. <laughs> no. I mean, some people want all the good times. Even in the church now, people say, it's all good. Oh, no, it isn't. If we want to grow up, there's a travail. That which the Lord has on his heart to show. Uh, to people in various places. So do you see what I'm saying? The Lord gives you a vision of something wonderful, but he also makes you aware of the context you're in that makes you go, woe is me. Oh, Lord. Look at our state and look what you're saying. This is the reality and the truth. This is our appearance. Groaning. Travail. Is what should result. So what do we do? 
Well, don't get depressed. Enter into travail. Now on that, I'm just going to say three things. They're so elementary, but uh, just to make a point. You have a choice of either getting depressed, as Solomon did. Oh, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. People are involved in a wonderful assembly of people, and it goes sour, and it goes bad, and the enemy gets in and stirs things up. People say, that's it. No more of that stuff. And a person who does that walks away from something that's a reality in the Lord, I'm sorry, they're going to live in a semi-depression the rest of their lives. You can't walk out on the Lord. I'm not saying they don't have to leave, leave someplace, but I'm saying you don't just quit. How can you quit? The Lord's life is in you. This is the one that never leaves you. If you sin, he still doesn't leave. If you quench, he still doesn't leave. You remember we heard that. And he's still groaning there. And until we find release for that groaning, and the exercise of that groaning, we won't get anywhere. We'll be stuck. And some people get stuck for a couple of years, wasting time. Until finally they decide, you know what? I'm going to get into the Lord about this thing. And so here's the three, three simple things I'm just saying. First, you've got to bring the matter into the closet and inquire of the Lord. You need to lay hold of the Lord. Now, do you know why you have that, that burden, that, that sense of travail? It's because the Lord has laid hold of you. Now, you need to get into your closet and lay hold of the Lord. And you say, Lord, I see it and I'm dissatisfied. I see it and I sense the, the, the contrast. I see it and I sense the disparity. Lord, what do we do? I come before you. And you lay hold of the matter before the Lord. Hmm? The second thing, of course, is you search the scriptures in order to find clarity in the word. What is going on? What is the fuller truth? Because so, so many times we see something wonderful, but we see it in part, you know? And we need to not only be in our closet laying hold of the Lord, but we also need to be searching in the Lord with that question before us. Lord, what about this that I see? And what about this that I see around me? Lord, show me in your word. Show me in your word. And I tell you, God is faithful. He will show you in his word. A way of putting words to a groan. Because sometimes when the Lord lays hold of us, we don't even know how to speak words to describe the agony. The Lord will give us words as we wait before him and search the scriptures. And then, and then the third stage, well, is to bring this matter from the closet into the house of prayer with other brothers and sisters where you can get through on the matter, where you can talk and agree together and lay before the Lord your own lives together that you're going to live according to what you have seen and not according to what is our way, our tradition. So, when the Lord lays hold of your heart and there's a sense of burden and travail within, don't waste that burden. Don't just get depressed about it. Don't just say, there's nothing I can do. Here I am out in this desert. There's, there's no saints around me that I know of who really have a Christ-filled Bible and see the, the immensity of Christ. Don't just get depressed. Come before the Lord about it. What should I do? Lord, do you want me to move? Lord, do you want me to uh, do something in my home? Lord, do you want me to meet over there? Lord, what do you want me to do? I don't know. But he has a way if you will take up this matter before him. The Lord gives you strength, you know. Even with a spiritual burden, the Lord gives you strength to still, as we said last night, 
to do your job and to do it well, to go to work every day, accomplish the tasks that you're given on your job, to come home at night and to wrestle with the Lord. This is our life. It may seem like a contradiction, and I don't want to make it clear. We cannot endure spiritual travail unless we're satisfied with Jesus. And that's why I say a spiritual travailing is not depression. Because you check yourself. Are you happy with the Lord? Do you love Him? Do you find Him your consolation, uh, your comfort? Then you have a burden. Now take hold of that thing and, and pray before the Lord on it. It's not depression. You'll find as you pray and exercise, the Lord takes and relieves you of this pressure. And then you get about your work and then He lays it back on you at another time. And you pray and then He lifts it and you go about your work. That's our life before the Lord. We live in two worlds. And we're citizens of heaven. And spiritual travail is what can bring life as we pray together. Well, now, uh, I finally come to the third part, which is very simple. It's a one-word answer. What is the key element in effective spiritual travail? What is that that makes spiritual travail so effective? Why is it the Lord has us in this time of groaning and anguish? The key is this. It's in waiting that the Lord accomplishes his purpose. Waiting. Waiting before the Lord. Waiting for the Lord to answer. The Lord gives us a strong desire in our heart and we pray. And then we wait. If you notice the brothers and sisters who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 those who are commended for the testimony of their faith. The faith was tested in their waiting. Abraham received the promise and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And that was his faith that was approved as righteousness. You see, in the very waiting, a number of things happen in our life, isn't it? What happens as we're waiting? We have this burden, we bring it to the Lord, we wait. Then he gives us a little something more, we wait what happens in this process? I tell you, it purifies us, first of all. Impatience is an impurity of the self-life. Let me say that again. Impatience is an impurity of the self-life. You want something now. And we are all so used to that. That when we come before the Lord about something and He doesn't answer immediately, we give up. How impatient we are. Think in contrast of how patient God is. How patient our Lord Jesus is, waiting for His bride. And He will teach those willing to learn the lesson of patience, waiting, purified in patience, simplified Impatience. And we have to be clarified in patience, you know, because our initial desire sometimes is partly right and partly needs adjustment. And before the Lord, He gives us another scripture, He gives us another something, and it clarifies, and we wait some more, and then He gives us something else and clarifies. So waiting is so important. The 
so many scriptures on God waiting and man waiting, but we don't need to go into them now. I'll just, we'll, we'll end with just three to take a final look at it. Waiting gives value to what you're waiting for. How much do you really want something? Are you waiting for it? Actively waiting before the Lord for it? And of course, the most precious key to waiting is this. It's as we're waiting before the Lord that we truly get to know the Lord. Now, in waiting before the Lord, it isn't inactive. It isn't a one-way, sitting there, dead silence. As we wait before the Lord with these burdens in our heart, the Lord reveals his mercy to us. He reveals his love to us. He, he shows us his ways. He shows us uh, our ways. He, 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 he humiliates us and he exalts himself. And in all of this waiting, there's a, trans, a, a transformation that goes on in our life. Waiting before the Lord. Did you ever realize how valuable that is? It's hard when you're 21 and to realize the value of waiting. But once you get older, older, you realize that the Lord makes us wait for many things. Some of you have a great desire in your heart for this and that. And the Lord has you waiting. Don't be depressed. Wait before him and discover more of his ways. And so I'm just going to close with three scriptures from the end of the Bible regarding waiting. Because it is such a key matter. And James chapter 5, you know the exhortation that we need to hear from our brother. James chapter 5, his uh, word, at least in my translation, is be patient. James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, can we do that? The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the latter rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your heart. The coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example of patience, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. Have you heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings? That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Oh, be patient. This matter of waiting for the Lord to come, the Lord wants us to be before him, asking him to come, waiting for him to come, learning about him as we wait for him to come. And then at the end of 1 Peter, the very next book, and we see in chapter 5, in verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh, how we need to wait a little while and suffer before him a little while. And then the Lord reveals himself and strengthens us and perfects us in the process. And the final one, of course, is that very 
uh, important one in Revelation chapter 12, where once again we find a woman travailing in childbirth. Now, I don't know much about travailing for childbirth, but I have a wife who had three sons. And all I know is uh, her, the period of her pregnancy was a year and nine months. That is to say, it was the last week was a year. The rest of the time was nine months. I mean, the agony of just before you're going to give birth is more than men ever want to know. And uh, if you talk to somebody who's just about ready to have a child, you'll find out their day has really elongated. Every discomfortable moment is measured in very slow ticking of the clock. But so that's what's necessary to come to full term and to bear a healthy baby. It takes a long time in travail. And so we have at the end of time this tremendous, these signs which John sees. In chapter 12 of Revelation, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with her sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in travail and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head were seven diamond, uh, diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she, uh, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness, and Satan was full of rage. Well, the story goes on. You know that story. And here is this travail for the man-child to be raptured to heaven. What a tremendous travail this is going on. And you see the great stakes involved, because Satan is waiting to snatch up and destroy that which is to be born of life from the heart of God. And yet we see when the moment came, the man-child was snatched up to heaven. I wonder how close this scripture is to today. I wonder if you feel this soon coming of the Lord and of these end-time things coming to pass. I wonder when this man-child will be brought to birth and snatched away. These things we don't know, but certainly when we read such scriptures, we should sense something into us that says, Oh, Lord, May this happen soon. Because as soon as that happened, then of course, the end game. I want the Lord to be happy with his world. A new heaven and a new earth built along his lines of righteousness, love, and truth. I'm looking forward to that day. And in the end, one of the reasons that we travail is this. Every blessing that we have Every enjoyment of the Lord and of life is still incomplete without our Lord here with us. Do you feel that way? I tell you, the Lord has blessed me so much. I want him here. 
It's just not complete. We're having a party, but he hasn't shown up yet. Even tomorrow as we break bread together, surely there's something in our heart that says, Lord, we don't care about making another dime. We're doing another thing if you could come. Because there's, there's something dissatisfied in all of us until he comes back. There's some things left undone. There's those top stones that need to be put in only by his coming. And so we wait. And so we yearn. And so we long. May the Lord help us. May he find among young people and old those who are willing to enter into such a longing for his coming and for all of these purposes. Let's pray. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, such a will from such a heart with such entire love, such a crowning of your son, such a wonderful day so soon ahead. Oh, Lord, grant us that longing. Even in the midst of all our doings, don't let us be deceived that this is good enough. In the end, it's futility unless the Lord shows up and sets things aright. Oh, Lord, at times this world vexes our soul. There's so much evil that goes on. And at other times we seem to live in apparent ease. But the fact of the matter is you're groaning for us. And, Lord, we want to return and say, Lord, here is your bondservant. Do according to your will. Oh, Lord, raise up those who have been so blessed and seen so much that there's a groaning deep within that others may enter into such wonderful fullness. Oh, may that be the propelling motive of our conversation with those that we know at work, at home, at school. Lord, we commit these things into your hands again when all is said and done. It's a great mystery. Show us thyself, and we will groan for more. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus.